for the people who might be watching this, other than the ones in the room, this is uh, E-102, Biblical Hermeneutics. And if that is not your destination, you should get off the plane. By the way, that did happen to me once. I was flying to uh, Boston, I think it was, and they said, you know, this is a flight to Boston. Uh, it's, uh, you know, E, uh, you know, it was still TWA, then TW, so-and-so. And the guy says, what? I'm going to Philadelphia. Gets up and charges on off the plane. So, I mean, there, there is a purpose to that. There is a purpose to that. Uh, so now, uh, let's uh, do as we always do. We'll uh, open the first session with a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have given us so many and such great gifts. You have given us life and health, good friends, but most of all, you have given us salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the Word, the Word of life. In this course, as we seek to study your Word, we seek to understand and know him better so that we may proclaim this Word to all whom we meet and to all whom we serve. We ask that you would be with us in this course. Help us to learn and grow in understanding. Give us readiness of mind and readiness of thought and readiness to give a witness to the hope that is within us to all whom we meet. This we ask in his name. Amen. Now this will be just an orientational session today. And uh, uh, basically, I'm going to be seating you guys alphabetically and partly because I haven't had all of you. Uh, but I think for the sake of the ed tech guys, what we'll do is we'll do that uh, at, toward the end of the period. And we'll just talk about some other stuff first. So toward the end, then we'll change around and do alphabetical seating and so forth. Uh, to get everything set. Um, so that, that'll take a while, and then we'll talk about uh, ourselves, and I want to find out a little bit more about a lot of you, and I'll tell you a little bit about myself. But I think we'll put that toward the end, because since this is going to be an uploaded class, I'm not sure everybody needs to know the facts of everybody like Gonzalez. So, uh, <coughs> yes. Um, <laughs> so let me, let, let me talk a little bit about this class in general. Um, this class is a class on the basic principles of biblical interpretation. And I should say right up front that when this class is taught at this seminary, there tend to be sort of two versions of it. There's the more theoretical version, and then there's the more practical version. So some guys teach it more from the standpoint of theory of language, um, abstract theory of interpretation, and so on. That's that's my focus. Other guys will teach it more as a how-to thing, that is to say more on how you use dictionaries and stuff like that. I, I mean, nobody's all one way or all the other. But 
this particular class is going to be a lot more on the theoretical side, on theory of language, um, and uh, you know how is language used to do things and things like that. I mean, as an example, just today, I got off the internet a very interesting piece um, called Feminist Formula uh, Makes Baptism Invalid Vatican Rules. Now this is really something. The Vatican has warned that baptism is not valid when the celebrant uses a popular new formula. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith released a statement on February 29th saying that a baptism in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier is not a valid Christian sacrament. And it goes on to say that people should be rebaptized. Now, is that right? Is the Vatican right on that? Now, you've got a whole bunch of linguistic stuff you've got to think through on something like this. Um, the meanings of words. Is creator and the father the same thing? Then what about the issue of efficacy? Now, that, that's not an issue of meaning. That's an issue of effectiveness. So if the meaning is different, does that affect, affect efficacy? See, all that kind of theoretical thinking about the use of language is what we want to talk about in this class. And this kind of an issue is going to come up in chapter 12 on speech act theory and pragmatics. Now I have to tell you guys that the fact of the matter is, and it's why I take the theoretical view of this rather than the more kind of practical view of um, the way this should be taught, is that almost all issues of interpretation wind up being hermeneutical issues. That is to say, your theory of interpretation. Very seldom, very seldom, do problems of interpretation really have to do about facts of grammar or something like that. I mean, as a matter of fact, um, you know, people think, oh, well, differences of interpretation can come up because of new discoveries or something that are made. Well, the last biggie like that was the Dead Sea Scrolls in the late 1940s. And all of a sudden, we had actual different manuscript readings and stuff, and that made a lot of difference. But apart from that, almost all changes in interpretation have to do with changes in our understanding of language, how language works, how it functions in our daily life, what's the relationship between a text, a given text, let us say, and the societal stuff around it. So for example, and we're going to deal with this specifically in this class, uh, texts like the so-called head covering text in 1 Corinthians 11 or in 1 Timothy 2, the text on, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, you know. Now, how does that all interact with the society around? Is stuff like that valid or does 
change in society actually say, hey, you know, we should take a different look at that text, or maybe the thing doesn't actually mean what it purports to say. So it's not like uh, with these kind of texts, your problem is, you know, we don't know what the word um, head means exactly. There's a little bit of dispute about that. But that's not where the issue lies. The issue is going to lie on the relationship between the text and surrounding culture. So uh, now on this last point, let me just say, one of the things we're going to be doing in this class, and we'll have to, the ed tech guys are going to have to try to figure out how we're going to do this. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to have a debate. And that debate is going to be over whether or not, given our contemporary culture, culture, it is in certain circumstances permissible to address God as our mother. All right, now that kind of an issue is an interface between language and culture. And there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into that. So those are the kinds of issues that we're going to be uh, wanting to focus upon in this class. The relationship between language and thought. Do Hebrew people think differently and therefore that's reflected in their language? Do Greek people think differently than Hebrew and therefore their language is different? So that we should be able to do some back transformation and get the way people think by how their language is formed? Very interesting kind of question. And not, not an unimportant question at that. We'll talk about that sort of issue. What, what kind of uh, depth of meaning are you able to get out of text? Hey, what about the issue of scripture and tradition? You're talking about the scripture, sola scriptura, scripture alone. How does that relate to what else we know about what the church believed and what the surrounding beliefs were and how does that impact sola scriptura. We're going to have all that. And then, of course, all of this comes to rest when you talk about application. So you maybe have the meaning of a text, but now what does that mean today? So, I mean, let's take a cheap, quick, dirty, and nuclear example. You hear this all the time. Well, how come in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about women not wearing hats, and we don't enforce that, but then we go to 1 Timothy 2, and I, the woman shouldn't teach or have authority, and we try to enforce that. What's the difference between those two things in application? Those passages we're going to address specifically in this course. Now, one of the things that you'll see in my hermeneutics book, and I had to make a decision on this when I wrote it, is whether you want examples that kind of illustrate what you are talking about, but don't sort of make any difference, or whether you want examples that are maybe highly controversial and show why it makes a difference that you should be considering this stuff. Well, I chose the latter. And uh, so a number of the passages um, that we choose on the image of God in uh, Genesis 1, 
this business of the so-called head covering. You know, all these passages are in there, and all these passages are going to be um, uh, subject to uh, our investigation. Now, um, I would like you, if you'd put this down or record this in some way, uh, I, I'd like you to bring to class every day three things. We may not use them, but we may. We just don't know. I would like you to bring to class your Greek Novum Testamentum, your Nestle Allen text. I would like you to bring the, to class your Biblia Hebraica, Stuttgartensia. And then I would like you to bring an English translation. ESV would work well, or RSV, or NASV, you know, something like that. I would like you to bring those things to class. You never know where the discussion's going to range. And we may be saying, hey, just open it here to Genesis 1, and I want you to have that. Now, I want to emphasize this point, guys. Please bring this stuff to class. Because when we're looking on with each other, all of a sudden it gets very disruptive and everything like that. So make sure that you actually have this material. Um, now, what's going to be important is the conduct of the class. I conduct this a little differently than any other class I teach, and a lot of other teachers don't follow this same method. I have found it to be just tremendously helpful. And that is, we'll be operating most of the time on the basis of what I call reaction papers. Now that is to say, most of the time you're going to have as an assignment a chapter in my hermeneutics book. And what I want you to do is read that over and you are going to be writing reaction papers. I'll talk about this in more detail in a second. But the class is going to be run on the basis of your reaction papers. So what will happen is we will review some basics, but then the main part of the class is I am going to be answering your questions. So not just the questions I think are important, questions you think are important. This works really well. I've been doing this now for about 18 years, and, and I, I think this works absolutely tremendously. So if you don't hand in a reaction paper, not only are you hurting yourself, you're actually hurting the whole class because it may just have that question that's really going to be critical to unlock something in the chapter. Then we're going to have a debate also. So essentially, this is an extremely interactive class. And that's uh, very important for you to see. Now if we'll take a look here at uh, at the way the thing is laid out. We've got 30 periods, so what we're doing is I 
I very much prefer three one-hour or 50-minute periods, 55-minute uh, periods, to uh, two period and halves because we can roll through more topics this way. And so we've got this laid out in, uh, uh, for 30 down to the final examination. So we're in period one, the course introduction, and then um, the next period is going to start in on the hermeneutics textbook, what does this mean? Now, uh, I'm just putting up here on the screen the older edition here. Let me have one of yours. So the, the newer one, the newer one, look, uh, the newer printing uh, looks like this from Concordia Publishing House in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, almost everything will be run on the basis of this book, and unlike some classes, we will do virtually everything in the book. That is to say, all the addenda. So we will be doing this according to the schedule that we have here. And so for period two, now that will be Wednesday, not tomorrow. That will be Wednesday. You're responsible for the preface and the introduction of that book. I want, before that, I want a reaction paper. Now, how is this supposed to work? Take a look at the nota bene on the right side, lower right side of the handout. A reaction paper is due for each period except the ones indicated. Like, for example, you couldn't have one today. A reaction paper will normally be one to two pages in length, typed, and will consist of three parts. And the majority of the first page will be a summary of the material in the chapter. This is to get your thinking straight about the chapter. I don't need your summary. You need your summary. So you're going to find that if you have to summarize it, you have to understand it. I will look over the summaries, and sometimes I will comment that someone's summary is incorrect. So then we'll talk about that. Then B, a detailing of any question on the assigned material you may wish to have clarified. So for example, you might say, you know, I just don't understand that chart on page 95. Could you explain what the arrows are doing? All right, then we talk about that. Then. C. And this is the interesting stuff. A setting of at least one question which interacts with the material on the basis of your previous knowledge and experience. Thus, a question something like this. I'm wondering how your view of language squares with the notion that the writers of the scriptures were led by the Holy Spirit, or you know, something like that. <coughs> or go back into your background. It can't, I've had great reaction papers with people saying something like, what you're saying here about language really reflects the way science works when it does an experiment like X, something like that. I want you 
to try to interact with the material from your life experiences. You will be shocked how <laughs> valuable this will be. I had one guy about 10 years ago who was a veterinarian, and he kept coming up with all of these incredible parallels between hermeneutical considerations and what he had to do to diagnose a difficulty with an animal, a cow, a sheep, or something like that. So you'd be surprised how much carryover there is on things like this. Now, before I go on to the, uh, to the next sentence, I want to say that essentially then, the class will be run pretty much along the lines of, in, in order, of those three parts. So the first part will be a highlighting of some of the main issues, or somebody, sometimes this happens, somebody has a superb summary of something. You know, read that out. Then, Grayson, not you, all right? <laughs> um, then we'll go on next to answer any questions people have for clarification. So if you're wondering in the first paper here, I, I don't know that I actually understood the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis. Okay? So we'll talk about that a while. But the majority of the class is going to be spent on the third part which is interacting with your papers, with your observations, with the fact that, you know, you might say something like this. I understood all this, and it didn't raise any issues of clarification. But in kind of moving this forward, this raises an issue for me about X. So, so we'll deal with that. Now, look what the last sentence is in that first paragraph under the nota bene. Such papers are normally due by 1025, that would be, you know, after chapel, the day of class at the Welcome Center. Now, since my class has moved to Steckhardt Hall, it's not so easy to put them outside my door and so on like that, so we can't really do that. Um, but what I would like, and by the way, it's why, uh, some of you may have wondered this, it's why this class is as late in the day as it is. I want to give you chance to hand in the reaction paper, and I, I have to have chance to look over the reaction papers. Now, I'm telling you guys, this is an extremely labor-intensive class for me because I have to look over 30 <laughs> papers, look at all the questions, I arrange them. You'll see me. I'll rip papers in half and stuff like that and rearrange stuff. This guy's got this question here, but he's also got an observation later, you know, something like that. And then I'll try to arrange the third part to kind of proceed from the kind of more basic observations to ones that raise huge philosophical issues and so on. So I got to have the papers in time because uh, this takes an hour or two every day before class to get, get all this stuff arranged. So please respect that time limit. Yeah? Would it be easier if we email them and you just copy and paste here? Um, no, it's actually not. It's actually not because then I've got to print it all first. So it's actually easier for me to, um, uh, I am a Luddite, okay? So uh, technology and me don't interface real well despite this class. 
So uh, uh, I, I would prefer to I would prefer to have actual hard copy handed in. Now, if something happens that you know your kid gets sick and you can't get there and you have to email it to me, okay. But uh, honestly, I don't want 30 emails a day. It's bad enough as dean of the faculty that I get about 20 other ones. You know, so. Uh, if you could just do it this way, I, I would very much appreciate that. Now, this will be, so the class is late enough that we're not going to have an issue like it is if it's at 8 o'clock where you have to be doing it the day before and everything like that. I don't want to get into that. So, um, uh, so this ought to work out pretty well. Now, we don't have any women in this class, which means that essentially we should not be handing in the papers longhand. Women have nice handwriting. Men are beasts. So they basically grip the pen as a wild object. Now, I will take handwritten, I will take handwritten examinations as long as you have really nice handwriting like uh, a few people that I've had in the past. And last year, I actually had a guy use an old manual typewriter, which was really interesting. I hadn't seen that for a long time. But um, Ryan Tinetti is like that. So um, uh, please make it so that I can actually read it, OK? Now, these, uh, these papers are going to be important for another reason. And um, uh, I'll get on to that in a second. But I'm going to, uh, for the final examination, the final examination will be a take-home exam. And you will be allowed to use your reaction papers for it. Okay. So a word to the wise here. If your reaction paper is sufficiently explanatory about stuff, it'll be really helpful. You will not be able to use the book. For your final, but you can use your reaction papers. So if your summary is adequate to this, this will really be helpful for you. Now look at uh, point two. Exercise sizes for periods 26 to 29 are contained in the print shop material exercises and study guides. Now that um, exercises and study guides is the supplemental material here, um, which is uh, available also from the bookstore. On here in particular, there's going, to be, there's going to be stuff on textual criticism toward the end of the course. Plus, plus in this supplemental material, exercises and study guides, if you look at your assignment sheet, you will see that uh, take a look at, uh, for example, period number four, uh, three, period three. Chapter four and addendum 4A, and then your assignment is, exercise, in addition, exercises three and one. Now that's in this supplemental material, which has these um, uh, exercises for you to do and these exercises for you to do give you an entree to the lexicons, the concordances, and they are designed to interface with the points in the chapter. Okay, So 
So you're going to have to hand in a reaction paper, and then I want you to be prepared to have those exercises discussed in, ch in the class that day. If you just go down, look at five, period five. Exercises 10, 13, 15, and 19. These are not big. It's just something to illustrate to you uh, what point it is that we're making. We may not have it, we may not call for it the day it's due. I may call for it the next day. Just bring it along. I'm not going to ask you to hand it in, okay? Not going to ask you to hand it in. Bring it along and we'll do it as, as we can. Now, if you'll take a look at, at period 9. This is addendum 7A, which is the, the thing on God talk. It's language about God. And here is the debate topic or issue. Given our contemporary culture, it is in certain circumstances acceptable to address God as our mother. What we will do is we will have two sides, and uh, I, hope, I hope this will be possible here, that we turn the seats to face each other. We'll divide the class into two with a, with a third section of it as judges, and we'll be debating that issue with each other with the tools from the chapter plus some other things I'll alert you to. But... Uh, uh, this issue of our language and how it interfaces with culture is a critical issue today. And this is actually a very real issue. Can you call God He? You have a lot of people who will say you know, that the word He and Him has gone out of their language for talking about God. And you'll hear phrases like, uh, God has revealed God's self to humanity because they don't want to say himself. I heard, a, I heard a lecture a number of years ago, probably five years ago now, uh, from the former head of the ELCA who gave an entire lecture. And I, I watched this just to see if he would actually do this, and he did. He gave an entire lecture without ever using the masculine pronoun. Uh, to the faculty, and he was talking about God, and you know he was talking about people, but he never referred to God uh, with a masculine pronoun. So is is there is that okay? Is that just maybe clumsy? Is there a problem because God is spirit? We shouldn't be using masculine pronouns. See, all those are hermeneutical issues. They're all hermeneutical issues. So. Uh, we're going to focus on those kinds of things. Just a word about required books. The required books, which are available at the seminary bookstore, I have on this sheet here that you can see, our uh, Bauer Danker Arndt Gingrich lexicon, that's the one that's put out in 2000 uh, by Fred Danker. Um, and then what I talked about, the two books that I want you to bring, the BHS hardback or paperback edition, the Nestle Allen Greek text, then Scott, we don't need this until the last couple of weeks of the course, 
Scott's Simplified Guide to PHS, a guide to the uh, coding and everything in uh, uh, the um, Biblica Hebraica Stuttgartensis. And then um, uh, what does this mean? We've talked about that already, the second edition, and then the supplemental material from the print shop. Now, essentially, uh, moving the sheet up here a little bit, uh, number two are items that are uh, kind of recommended, but um, uh, I'm not going to be real strict about that. These are two books on textual criticism. Now, the sections, chapters 1 to 3, on textual criticism in What Does This Mean, give you a pretty good introduction. Details, though, on the manuscripts and on the versions and so on like that are in these other books. So the Metzger Ehrman one is on, for the New Testament, and Emmanuel Tov is textual criticism of the Hebrew Bible. You'll notice the bottom one by Wirtwein, and that's a number three, which means it's a special order, text of the Old Testament. Uh, that's a very, very good book uh, on textual criticism of the OT and would be an alternative to a manual Tov. Tov is kind of the standard, though, so I put it that way. And then Moulton Gieden, Concordance to the Greek New Testament, I really believe everybody should have that, or you have to have some online version of it. But uh, uh, that's a very handy thing, the concordance which lists all the words that occur, like all the uses of okuo are all gathered and laid out by uh, book, chapter, and verse, and so forth. But uh, I've, tried to keep, I've tried to keep the um, amount of required books down on this because I want to focus on what's going on in the essential textbook. All right, now, one final thing about reading the textbook. And I'll come around here and I'll use Gonzales's textbook. Uh, <clears throat> with one exception, that occurs in the introductory, the general introduction. Um, and it is footnote 7 on page 15. With the exception of that footnote, there is basically nothing in the footnotes that is necessary to the argument of the chapter. Now I'm going to say that again. There is nothing, with that one exception, there is nothing to the footnote, in the footnotes that is necessary to the argument of the chapter. It's all footnoting that is expansive or additional material. <coughs> I tried very hard in writing the book to make sure that that was the case. Now, this means that when you read the book, what I, I would recommend is that you do it in the following way. I'd recommend that you read each chapter or addendum twice. They're not long, they're 10 pages. First, read the entire main text without looking at any footnotes. <coughs> then read it again, and this time, stop and look at the footnotes. The argument 
the book is formulated in such a way that the argument should be complete and it should be um, cogent without you dropping down and doing the footnotes. So I really tried very hard in the argumentation to make sure that all the necessary steps of an argument are actually in the text itself. The bottom then being essentially expansive. And that's where I can kind of hypothesize on things or say, now here's an interesting example of that or you know, something along those lines. So if you try to read the thing and check the footnotes the first time, you might get lost in it. The chapters are not that long. They are extremely detailed, um, and there's not a lot of redundancy in the book. I mean, I, I didn't actually realize how non-redundant the book is until a student about three years ago said to me, and he was in about chapter six or something like that, and he said, Professor Vels, would you look at this sentence? And so we read it over. And then he said, does this sentence mean essentially the same thing as the previous sentence? And I said, yes, it does. And he said, that's the first time in this book you have ever actually repeated yourself. Well, I wasn't aware of that, you know. But the, the argumentation is tight. It's not chatty. That's another way to say it. It's not chatty. So uh, be prepared for that. But it's not a lot of pages either. Now, one of the reasons for that is that uh, when you produce a book, this has 368 pages. This is divisible perfectly by 16. Okay? 16 is the number of pages in a choir, Q-U-I-R-E, a, a, a section of paper that is used to make books. And they use another choir when they finish with a previous one. So in other words, if I had gone one more page, there would have been 15 blank pages. This is one of the reasons why footnote 7 of the introduction has not been moved up to the basic text. At this point, I can't quite do that without bumping another page out of the book, and then that becomes an issue. So We'll have to do that if there is a kind of a general revision and a third edition or something like that. So, um, so basically, we're going to be running with the text, and your reaction papers will basically be going off the text.